Hello and welcome to the Alcohol Recovery Show, where we discuss practical, actionable steps for anyone who wants to achieve their dream of getting and staying well, happy and free from any form of alcohol dependence. Hello, this is the Alcohol Recovery Show. Antonia here. Thanks for listening today. Today, I'm going to be having a chat with Lewis, who is going to answer some of our readers' and listeners' questions. He's going to be telling us a little bit about his background working for alcohol services in England and uh, how Winds Press started. Also, Lewis will be sharing with us which book is his personal favourite some of the challenges he faced uh, in his work. We're going to finish with what stops people seeking help and, more importantly, uh, what they can do about that. Hi, Lewis. Thanks for coming in today to do an interview for our listeners. You're welcome. You often mention your time working in addiction treatment. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Okay, well... um... The main job that I did, I worked at different locations, but the main job that I did was um, based in the uh, outpatient unit of a hospital in England. Um, this specialised in addiction treatment. Um, it was something authorised by the, uh, the UK Health Service. I had a caseload of, on average, probably around 50 clients that I dealt with. And... Um, as you will know from reading my books, uh, a big part of that was doing one-to-one work and also running groups. Oh, thanks. Uh, just leading on from that, um, can you tell us, did you have to do assessments on clients? Very much so, yes. Uh, that was a big part of the job. When anyone came in uh, for the first time, I would carry out a clinical assessment with them which would be quite a long procedure, really, taking at least an hour going through their background, not just in terms of alcohol, but any other substance use, other problems they might be facing, psychosocial issues, generally everything that's going on in their lives. So you could put together a picture of what was uh, going on with the person so that you can then put a, a, a care plan together for them to, to, take, them, to take them forward. What size of groups did you work with and what sort of activities did you do in groups? The group sizes would, would be anything up to 20 people in the room. Put that as, as the limit because everyone needed to have a chance to have a say and if there was more people than that, people couldn't, um, couldn't get a word in. A typical group format would start off with me doing an introduction to the group and then we would... Um, give everyone a chance to uh, say what's been going on with them recently. For instance, if people were coming into a once a week group, they could reflect on what happened in the last seven days. And then I'd introduce the topic for that particular group uh, and we would uh, discuss that issue. So my role was very much to facilitate the group, to, to get things going. The most important thing was the, uh, was the feedback from the group not just feedback to me, but, but to each other, because it's very much discussion-based. There were many challenges I'm sure you had to face with uh, the clients that you worked with there. What were some of the biggest challenges you faced? Well, probably the, the biggest challenge I faced with clients uh, was with clients that, frankly, didn't want to be there. 
um, people that have been referred, for instance, by probation or, or by, um, by health workers or frequently people who are there under pressure, um, they're trying to please their family. Working with, uh, especially on a one-to-one -one basis with people like that who, who really just did not want to be there, um, if they felt cornered, because they're forced to be there. Well, when people are cornered, they tend to want to come out fighting, which is not ideal when you're trying to work in a therapeutic way with people. The most important thing, I believe, to help address anyone's addiction issue, whether it's, whether it's to alcohol or anything else, is willingness from the client. Without that, it's always going to be an uphill struggle to make progress. And clearly, if people didn't want to be there, they, they felt they were there under duress, they're not going to have that willingness. I'm sure our readers are very, very glad that uh, you decided to uh, get, get onto your keyboard and, and become an author and um, share all your uh, knowledge and skills in helping people with alcohol issues. But could you tell us a little bit about why you became an author how it happened, and uh, why did you write about alcohol issues? A big part of my job was report writing. Uh, this, was, this was vital in giving feedback to the health service. And client notes could be used in all sorts of settings. Uh, for instance, um, my co-workers might need to refer to them at a later point. Perhaps a doctor might need to refer to them. In some cases, they, um, they were even read out in court where I was providing information to help clients who had legal issues. Also, I spent a lot of time writing literature for groups, for handouts and plans for, for group sessions. What I really needed was some form of book that I could give to people which summarised all of the things that we discussed in the groups. I looked around on the internet and in bookshops to find such a book and it just didn't exist. And after a while I realised that, well, I needed to actually write that book. And that was the idea behind Alcohol and You. I could have written a book which was aimed at any form of addiction. And in fact, initially I considered doing that. However, I decided to address alcohol in particular for the simple reason that I knew from my work that 80% of the people that I dealt with were in addiction services, partly or wholly due to alcohol issues. Therefore, it made sense to focus on, on that particular substance. So I wrote Alcohol and You, and having found myself with a full-length book, I decided that I'd try publishing it to make it uh, available to a wider audience than simply the people that I dealt with locally. As it happened, um, a few weeks after I published it on Amazon, people started buying the book. Sales started to pick up over a period of time, and after a while I realised that I had a new career on my hands as an author. So your your career as an author really sprung on quite naturally from your uh, work in addiction services. Very much so, yes. And I often get people contacting me, asking me if they can attend my groups, which is no longer possible because I'm not running them anymore. Uh, however, 
If you read Alcohol and You, each chapter in that is like attending one of my groups. Uh, each chapter is based on the sort of things that we would discuss in a weekly group. So yes, my, my writing was very much a natural progression from the work I was already doing. Well, that's great because um, you, can, you can reach more people through your books than you ever could in a group. Well, yes, that's, that is very much the case because in, in my group work, I would be dealing with, as I, I said earlier, perhaps up to 20 people in a particular group. I'd run three groups a week. So the maths, quite simply, is, you know, I, I would never be reaching more than 60 people in a week, absolute, absolute tops. Whereas writing, I'm reaching, I don't know, thousands of people, mm, sure uh, tens of thousands of people. You know, tens of thousands of people have now read Alcohol and You. Tens and thousands of people have now read The Ten Day Detox. I could never have achieved that in, in my job. And of course, uh, your books are available as audiobooks as well, so that makes them accessible for everybody. Even if some people don't like, particularly like sitting reading books, they can listen to the books as well, which must uh, must really help. Well, yes, um, audio is a revelation to me. I must admit, because um, it took me a while to get round to uh, releasing the books as audio books, and I'm now so so glad that I did um, because. Th- Audio has, has opened up a whole new world for for my readers, who many of whom, of course, have become my listeners. For instance, Alcohol and You, um, when that came out as an audio book, it was really surprised me because it sold more as an audio book than it than it ever did as a, as a print book. I didn't see that coming. And of course, with the book, I'm thinking about the book um, Mindfulness for Alcohol Recovery. Uh, it's got lots of guided meditations to support people reading the book or absorbing the book. And that's particularly therapeutic, I think, uh, in the audio format. Would you agree? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean that book, um, listening to it, um, gives it a whole new dimension that doesn't come across um, on the, in the written word. And of course, just to remind listeners, um, on our uh, website, windspress.com, there's lots of uh, free resources, such as um, we've got an urge surfing meditation and other guided meditations um, that people can get for free. Yes, indeed. Okay, so for people who listen to our podcast regularly or are familiar with with, uh, the work of Windspress, they'll have heard Windspress mentioned on numerous occasions, but they might be interested in knowing a little bit about how Windspress came about. Can you tell us a bit about the background? Yeah, surely. Well, uh, long story short, um, before I actually started writing, I I was looking at putting together uh, a service locally, um, a therapeutic service for for counselling people with uh, addiction issues. And um, I gave that the name Wessex Inspirations. Wessex was the area in England where, where I was working. And uh, I called that WINS for short. That particular project was overtaken um, by the success of Alcohol and You. And when I decided to start writing more books, I realised I needed to actually start a publishing company. So WINS became WINSPress.com. Of course, leading on from the success of Alcohol and You, um, you're, the, the, you're the author of many successful books which have helped thousands of people. 
But could you tell us which book is your personal favourite? Well, they all have a place in my affections. Writing a book, as I discovered, is a is a major undertaking. It, it takes over your life for months while you're writing it. And uh, it's a big part of your life. So Alcohol and You, obviously, being the first, that could be a candidate for being my favourite, but I really enjoyed writing Change Your Life Today. Uh, that was very much me talking on a very personal level to the reader. Of course, the 10-day alcohol detox plan, that's been such a success. That has a big place in my affections. And following on from that, I wrote The Emotional Mind, and I must admit, when I when I finished the emotional mind, I thought at that point that was probably my best book. So these are these all have, are can, candidates for being my favourite. But I think probably at the moment, if I had to specify one, it would actually be our collaborative venture, Mindfulness for Alcohol Recovery. I really really enjoy that book. I, I like to go back over it and, and read parts of it purely for pleasure. Yes, I, I'd agree. Um, it's a lovely book to dip into and I find it very uplifting and uh, you know if you go off course a little bit it, it really puts you back on track and of course with mindfulness um, I mean a common um, misunderstanding is that you have to be able to just sort of sit and empty your mind but we know that it's more about just being an observer of your thoughts, just watching your thoughts, because we all have thoughts all the time. Absolutely. So um, even if someone is completely new to meditation, has tried it before and hasn't worked, it's definitely worth either having a listen to or having a read of it. And certainly um, readers have commented to me that they've tried meditation in the past, it hasn't worked for them, and they've, they've discovered that book and it's it's really turned things around for them. So, yes, it was a pleasure to write and it's a pleasure to read. OK, so just getting back to the work that you did directly uh, with clients, going back to when you worked for Public Health in England, I'm aware that you worked with many people uh, who faced difficulties. Which challenge stands out in your mind the most? Well, that's a really difficult one to answer. The... Possibly the best way for me to explain this is that uh, when people come into addiction services, they've probably already tried going down the self-help route. Perhaps they've um, attended uh, sobriety meetings like AA. That hasn't worked for them. So by the time people actually got to see to see me... Yes, yeah, so these people, um, many of them had already tried lots of different routes to get sober. And by the time they came to you... It was pretty much their last shot at getting sober. Is that right? In the majority of cases, yes. And the reason for this would usually be that it wasn't simply an alcohol problem. Alcohol problems rarely exist in isolation. It's, it's usually the case that people have multiple problems. This, this may be due to their drinking. Their drinking has caused problems in their life. But where, to answer your original question, the, the really challenging ones were, is where people had underlying issues, serious underlying issues, and the alcohol may well have just been a symptom of that. Very commonly, people would be multiple 
substance users. So perhaps it wasn't just the alcohol. They could be using cocaine or marijuana or benzos or, or, or other drugs as well. That made it a far more complex situation to deal with. And probably the, the most difficult ones where we, was where people had uh, mental health issues as well. Um, I've dealt with, for, for example, veterans, war veterans, who have PTSD issues, which, which run very, very deep from terrible experiences that uh, they may have um, uh, seen in Iraq or Afghanistan. And I've also dealt with people who, who are uh, schizophrenic. And in those sort of situations, the, the drinking might simply be assist. Um, so it was a way of self-medicating, really. Very much self-medicating. Uh, you know, the alcohol would be um, a symptom of the underlying issue. And the underlying issue really was the elephant in the room as far as I was concerned. So in those sort of situations, I might be working hand in hand uh, with with other professionals such as um, such as uh, psychiatric workers, and those were the situations which which were the most challenging for me. Sounds like some very complex issues you had to deal with. Absolutely, yes. And if there are people out there listening to this who have major issues like that and um, at the moment are just trying self-help um, to overcome these issues well doing things like reading my books will help but please if you believe you might be in that sort of situation make sure you get professional one-to-one -one help as well. You mentioned that many of the people who came to you came under duress um, due to legal issues or heavy pressure from their families and it's not uncommon for people to put off stopping drinking when they need to. Um, what do you think is the number one reason why people put off stopping drinking? I think the, the, the main reason why, why people do put off um, dealing with their alcohol issue, even though it might be quite clear to them that it's doing an enormous amount of damage in their life, is fear. Yeah, I can understand that fear, really, because um, if people have been using, they've been self-medicating and using alcohol as sort of like a crutch to get through life and just to cope, I guess it must be te pretty terrifying for people to imagine life with, without that, without their anaesthetic, basically. Yeah, absolutely. People, uh, particularly people who have been drinking for many years, just simply can't get their head around the idea of what of what life would be like without the alcohol. So that must be a really difficult place for people to be, a bit of a really stuck between a rock and a hard place because they are frightened about going through life without alcohol but realise at some point, um, even if it's just pressure from others, they do need to do something about it. Yes, Um Something that I discovered when I started working in addiction services, which I wasn't quite prepared for, was meeting people whose alcohol use was so extreme it was literally killing them. And they knew this. Their doctors had told them that, you know, if you carry on like this, you've only got six months a year to live. And yet they carried on drinking. Now, that really shocked me because I thought that 
someone in that situation, if they knew that alcohol was actually killing them, they would stop drinking. But I discovered with some people that the fear of being without alcohol was actually greater than the fear of dying. That was extraordinary. And it just shows how powerful fear of being without alcohol can actually be. So if any of our listeners are considering stopping drinking and they're in that very uncomfortable space of being fearful um, about the future without alcohol or certainly without alcohol use to the extent that they have been using it, have you, have you got any particular advice for anyone? Well, I know from reader feedback that something that has helped people get over that initial fear uh, has been through doing the 10-day alcohol detox plan. There's something in that book which surprises people. And you can, you can actually go and read the reviews on Amazon. You'll see people commenting on this. It's the idea that actually being sober is a place of comfort. It's a safe place. It's not somewhere to fear at all. And if you can take on board that concept, then doing the 10-day detox doesn't seem so scary after all. That makes a huge amount of sense because when you think about it, uh, if you're sober, you don't have, you've, there's a lot of fear taken out of your life. You don't have to worry about what you did the night before. You don't have to worry um, about doing something that, that's going to involve breaking the law and you don't remember or you do it under the influence. It's life actually is, it makes perfect sense. It's much safer and much more comfortable um, to lead a sober lifestyle rather than one where you are constantly looking over your shoulder, fearful about what you might have done if you've been drinking too much. Yes, absolutely. So that's why in that book I talked about sobriety as being a place of comfort. It's a place where, you know, you don't worry about going back to see your doctor. You don't put off going to see your doctor because you're scared of what he's going to say to you. You don't worry when you wake up in the morning about what you did last night. It doesn't concern you that you can't remember what you did because you can remember what you did. It's a place of comfort. If you can take that on board, get into the 10-day detox program, well, once you've done 10 days, you've got past that fear and you can then look at longer-term solutions. I, th I think that's a really lovely uh, message to get across, um, that instead of seeing sobriety as something to be feared, see it as something to actually move into comfortably and uh, yeah, thanks for that. Um, I, th I think a lot of people will take that away with them as um, a very helpful tip. Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to that today. Uh, we've got another short interview with Lewis coming up again next week. So make sure you tune in and listen to that. And just to let you know that um, we will be taking a break over the summer if you do have any suggestions for any topics you would like covered in the autumn when we come back, please do keep sending in your messages, questions and comments via our contact page at Winds Press. I leave the details in the notes uh, with today's episode. 
We'd love to hear from you and um, we can work on those questions over the summer and get back to you in the autumn. But in the meantime, there will be another episode coming up next week and we look forward to talking to you then. Okay, so thanks for listening today and bye for now.